Could it be that the shock and horror of Putin's crimes against humanity may have a positive result? Will Ukraine write the epitaph for the far right? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. With authoritarian right-winger Vladimir Putin unleashing unimaginable horror and death on the innocent civilians of Ukraine, it reminds the shocked world of the genocidal war which befell the citizens of Europe in 1939. Seventy-five years ago, the fascist dictator unintentionally united the world against him. Though the Nazis were much more efficient and mechanized in their killing machine than the less efficient, less militaristic democracies, they fought back and they won. It would have been logical to think that was perhaps that victory was the end of dictatorships and authoritarianism, which was determined to destroy democracy everywhere. The far right had been swept into the dustbin of history. Or so we thought. In recent years, many versions of autocratic fascism sprouted within the democracies of Europe and America. Though we very rarely learn from history, with the rise of Eurofascism, a careful observer might recognize the beginning of an end for that far right, which has so enthusiastically embraced authoritarianism and so threatened traditional Republican forms of government. As one who is committed to keeping democracy alive, you can imagine an article titled, Will Ukraine Write the Alt-Right's Epitaph? Caught my eye. Could it be something positive to come out of Russia's war crimes against Ukraine? Our returning guest is its author, John Pfeffer. Thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Always a pleasure to be on your show, Bert. John Pfeffer is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's the author most recently of Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams, and the dystopian novel Splinterlands, and soon-to-be-released sequel Frostlands. He's the author of several other books, and his articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Los Angeles Review of Books, Salon, and many other publications. Well, no one... I can't imagine could have ever thought there could be such a criminal war in 2022 Europe. And if you grew up in America in the 20th century, no one could have imagined the Republican Party pivoting so far away from conservatism as to energetically seek to destroy our treasured Republican form of government. That is at the very foundation of what we aspire to be. But indeed, the unthinkable has happened. At Republican conventions here in the United States, people waved banners for Trump and Russia at the same time. T-shirts that said, I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat. These are the same people whose very identity had been opposition to a fascistic Russia. They wrapped themselves in the American flag, and yet they're 
they still do that, yet they're the opposite of the principles they claim ownership of. American Republicans have always claimed to be 100% Americans. When I was growing up, the John Birch Society was understood to be pretty much the farthest to the right. As you write, but they were exceedingly anti-Russian. What is this right uh, of which you speak? What does that mean? How are they affected by this war, do you think? Well, it's it's an interesting question because we've seen the evolution of uh, the far right uh, over the years from what had been a a kind of very much anti-Russian position to a pro-Russian position. Uh, Obviously, the anti-Russian position of the past was all wrapped up in an anti-communist ideology. And uh, the transformation of of the far right, both here in the United States and in Europe, and in certain kind of locales and enclaves around the world, has been because of the way Vladimir Putin has positioned Russia as an anti-liberal force. And uh, you know, this is, of course, very, uh, very central to the far right thinking, a rejection of liberalism, both in the political sphere, uh, the economic sphere and the social sphere. And on those three kind of requirements, Russia under Vladimir Putin fills the bill, fits the bill. Um, in other words, you know, uh, we're talking about a an anti-liberal philosophy coming from uh, the head of state in Russia that is very conservative in its social policy, very much quote-unquote pro-family, very pro-religion, anti-feminist, anti-LGBT, so very much part of that conservative um, kind of worldview. On the political side, a rejection of you know, uh, kind of multiculturalism and the evolution of democracy to take into account minority views, both minority in terms of minority politics, but also in terms of identity questions. Uh, and then on the economic side, a kind of rejection of of what has been called neoliberalism. Uh, and in this case, from the Russia side, an embrace of basically a corporatist position uh, in which the government and corporations are very, very closely aligned and basically craft economic policy together. So this kind of trinity of anti-liberal views has made uh, Vladimir Putin a, uh, a kind of star in, in the anti-liberal firmament uh, and the conservative firmament more generally. But there's one last important additional addition, and that is there's a racial element. And uh, Russians are generally white, although, I mean, they aren't. There are plenty of non-white Russians. But uh, from the kind of conservative or far-right point of view, Russia is a white nation uh, and a powerful white nation. And Vladimir Putin has articulated basically uh, the equivalent of a white nationalist position. And so there is congruence there as well between Mm. the far right uh, and, and Vladimir Putin. Just amazing, amazing. History is always, always unpredictable. And American evangelists are today pretty much the solid base of the newly right-wing Republican Party. What is this worldwide, worldwide religious nationalism for which they are marching that, that supersedes America? 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's no longer really uh, a question of, um, shall we call it, sectarian strivings. In other words, the effort by, say, Protestants to assert themselves against Catholics or Catholics to assert themselves against Hindus. I mean, there is, to a certain extent, an element of that still remaining, uh, but the kind of religious wars that we imagine from two or three hundred years ago, have changed. And instead, it's kind of a, a, a pan-religious attack on modernity. And what I mean by that is that there is a profound discomfort among uh, the more conservative adherents of a variety of religions, or one could say all religions, whether we're talking about Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, even Buddhism, uh, the kind of more conservative adherents of those religions are profoundly uncomfortable with uh, developments in modern society. Um, obviously, they're not happy, happy with secularism, or with the falling away uh, of people from religion more generally, but more specifically, they're unhappy with what they see as a deterioration of the centrality of the family uh, and a family of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, um, and the centrality of that in society, the blurring of uh, gender roles, uh, the blurring of um, sexuality, so that uh, they're profoundly uncomfortable with homosexuality. Right. And of course, they're as well profoundly uncomfortable with uh, the uh, the growing, uh, shall we say, spectrum of options when it comes to uh, to gender and sure. sexuality, and uh, and very much opposed to trans uh, oh, yeah. transsexualism, etc. So uh, so that's that's at the heart, I think, of mm. the the religious um, uh, kind of attack on uh, the far right religious attack, not only on kind of modernism, but even uh, an attack on uh, liberal religion uh, and and oftentimes mainstream religion, which by and large has embraced many of the kind of central tenets of, of modern uh, society. So it's, it's a war by the far-right uh, religions, religious tendencies, not only against modernism more generally, but against their more tolerant co-religionists. Mm. And as you were describing that, I, I somehow my mind was thinking of uh, Al Qaeda. <laughs> you know, they mm-hmm. want to go back to the seventh century, and, and uh, they're quite open about that. And uh, it's interesting how th- there are some uh, similarities, just rejecting modernism and, and wanting to go back to some uh, caliphate for them. Uh, and th- these wars, you know, these awful, unbelievable wars. I, I you know. I, I, I couldn't imagine there being something like this in 2022. Three years ago, I toured, and this was rather educational for me, the Western Front World War I battle sites. And it, at Verdun, I happened to sit at, on a bench with some German high school students. This was at a time when the AFD, the Alternative for Germany, was on the rise. Right-wing, neo-fascists, whatever. I was not expecting the young man I spoke with to tell me that AFD was at its strongest in formerly East Germany. I, I think the AFD is much less strong today. Why do you think the appeal of authoritarianism was greater there than in formerly West Germany? Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting question, and and I would I would connect it to 
um, other trends that we've seen, for instance, in France um, and even here in the United States, uh, where you saw formerly uh, folks who were on the left in, in France, who were members of the Communist Party, uh, shift over rather dramatically to the far right. Um, so in France, you saw mm. uh, voters who had aligned themselves with the Communist Party, especially at a local level. Marseille and other parts of the country, shifting in, in rather large numbers uh, to the National Front and Marine Le Pen. Um, and, uh, and they were doing so largely for economic reasons, in some sense identity politics reasons, but um, they felt that liberal parties, and that could be you know the Socialist Party in France, it could even be the kind of moderate conservative party in France had abandoned them as a constituency um, and that the Communist Party no longer mattered uh, in politics for the most part and they wanted to kind of join uh, an up-and-coming political party that represented their interests and represented their interests as folks left behind mm. by globalization mm. and uh, and all the other major parties basically embraced globalization said hey this is the future we have to adapt to it um, and there there are lots of you know reasons for us to be enthusiastic about globalization but these members of the Communist Party and others said but we're not we're not seeing any benefits from globalization right. and so we're we're going to back the political party that has most vociferously um, uh, opposed globalization, and that turned out to be the far right, the mm. National Front. And you saw that to a certain extent with uh, either traditional uh, Democratic Party constituencies here in the United States, and even some folks who had you know voted for Bernie Sanders you know, just crossed the aisle and, and voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, and they did so again largely because they felt that um, that Bernie Sanders articulated a, a kind of a position that was counter to, to economic globalization. He was attacking the fat cats. He was attacking the one percent. Um, and they did not feel like anybody else in the Democratic Party was doing that. And they believed, erroneously, of course, but they believed that Donald Trump represented right. that position in the Republican Party. So if we go back to Germany and try to explain, well, why does the AFD, the, the alternative for Deutschland, have so much popularity in Eastern Germany, uh, formerly communist land of, of, of mm -hmm. uh, what has been the United Germany since 1990? Um, there is in part that that question of uh, of economic um, disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in, in Eastern Germany felt that they did not benefit from unification and subsequently have not benefited from globalization. Uh, so the only party that kind of represented that feeling of uh, loss and of disenfranchisement was the AFD. Right. Um, you add on to that the fact that um, you know the, there is a strong degree of racial resentment in Eastern Germany. Mm. Um, that I mean, you can find it in Western Germany, but it is not as a quote unquote acceptable uh, as you can find it in certain communities in Eastern Germany, um, and uh, a resentment toward you know the the groups of people who had been the um, 
the uh, the uh, ideologically aligned communities under communism, you know, Vietnamese communities that had been brought over um, uh, to to work, for instance, uh, or folks from Africa. There was a lot of racial resentment sure. um, building up in East German society. So then, when you had an influx of immigrants. Um, uh, and that's basically, you know, the the kind of the the main uh, that that has been the main agenda for the alliance, uh, the alternative for for Deutschland, and that is an anti-immigrant platform. Yeah. When you have a party come along and say, "Hey, you know, these are the folks who are are the problem," and they are also kind of the the instruments of globalization. I mean, if we think of globalization not just as uh, goods and services and capital crossing borders, but also people crossing borders, yeah. then immigrants also become kind of a face of globalization. Then the AFD can can really appeal on a number of different levels to folks in Eastern Germany. Yeah, and of course, uh, the former Ottoman Empire was uh, allied with uh, Germany in the First World War, and a lot of uh, Turkish people came over too, and they're the other. And I do find it uh, fascinating that and sad that yes, people do feel left behind. I, I've been in parts of Pennsylvania where I got the sense it was clearly Trump country that they felt like, you know, I've been working hard all my life. I've been playing by the rules, and I'm not getting ahead. And this globalization, you're right. And so, who's there to benefit from that? The far right, of course, and uh, it was Trump country. It's not all bad news here. Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, John Pfeffer, director of foreign policy and focus at the Institute for foreign, foreign for policy studies. And the question is, with some degree of hope, dare we hope, will Ukraine write the alt right's epitaph? Could this be the end? And you know, we know about Trump here. We know about uh, Putin. But there are many other Western European countries that have also seen a rise in the far right. Right-wing leaders who have wielded significant political power in the UK, in France, Hungary, Italy, the Netherlands. I wonder if you could just take a few minutes and tell us about that gallery of right-wingers. Sure. Well, first, I would uh, emphasize that we have a difference uh, between um, leaders of the far right that have taken over in certain countries. Then we have some leaders of political movements that have had some success in, uh, in gaining seats in parliaments throughout Europe. And then a third category, which would be movements that really don't care about. Uh, getting getting into power, uh, but have very specific you know, goals that um, that they've organized around, and that could be around the European Union. It could be around immigration. It could be around. Uh, it could even be more extreme in the sense of neo-Nazi or paramilitary formations. But let's start with the first category, which are the folks who manage to um, uh, become the leaders of their countries, and, and this was most prominent in Eastern Europe, where you had Viktor Orban, for instance, who had been um, a liberal uh, at the beginning of his career back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. He served uh, in the 90s as a prime minister for four years uh, as a more or less liberal or centrist uh, politician. But then liberalism as a kind of ideology became um, 
rather uh, rather weak in Hungary. Uh, a lot of people were very disillusioned with the impacts of liberal economic reforms. Uh, and so uh, the kind of political support for liberal parties in general collapsed. Orban looked around and said, huh, well, in that situation, I see that there's a political opportunity on the on the right wing of the political spectrum. I'm going to start organizing there. And he took his party basically from the left all the way over to the right, began organizing again, and then uh, became prime minister once again in 2010 and has been prime minister ever since. Uh, and he has basically remade Hungary in in the image, if you will, of Vladimir Putin's illiberal ideology. He has uh, consolidated his own par- power and the power of his party. He's uh, suppressed independent media. He's uh, made it more difficult for there to be an independent judiciary. He's changed the constitution a uh, number of times in order to enshrine uh, conservative political and social principles within the very nature of the, the kind of constitutional DNA of the country. Um, transformed Hungary from what had been a kind of poster child of of liberalism in the early 1990s into the poster child of of illiberal reaction. And a number of other uh, political leaders, um, Kaczynski in Poland, Jansha in Slovenia, uh, Fico in Slovakia, um, throughout the region have kind of looked to Viktor Orban as, as uh, as a precedent, as a way of building political power on the right wing uh, in order to, to, to gain office uh, and to transform societies. Um, so that's happened throughout Eastern Europe. Well, before we, I, I just want to take it mm-hmm. from, from Viktor Orban. Uh, he's, should he be nervous now? I mean, his power he is, is pretty strong, is it not? Is there something, that's, is there something happening here that uh, he should be worried about? Well, you know, the, as I said, he's been in power since 2010. He's uh, often governed with supermajority, which has allowed him to change the constitution. Um, he has uh, solidified his control of governance in the face of a fractured opposition. But we do have elections coming up in Hungary next month, and the opposition has coalesced around uh, a figure who is by no means liberal. <laughs> he's quite a conservative, yeah. uh, but a traditional conservative, uh-huh. and someone who who's very much opposed to the autocratic tendencies of, of Viktor Orban. And there's a very good chance that the opposition will finally be able to take uh, Orban down. The war, to jump ahead a little bit, uh, the war in Ukraine has changed the complexion a little bit of the the kind of electoral struggle in Hungary in the sense that, you know, prior to the invasion, Orban was all in when it mm. came to, to Russia and Putin, uh, you know, openly said that, that Putin is a role model, basically. After the invasion, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. Um, and, you know, th- there are plenty of people in Hungary who have fresh uh, memories of what Russia, what the Soviet Union did in 1956, and can see that there are parallels to what is happening in Ukraine today. And they're not happy with that. Uh, Orban himself has uh, condemned the the invasion, has Mm. basically broken with Putin on this issue. Uh, But it might be too late um, for uh, the elections. The, The opposition has very cleverly put up posters uh, all around the country that basically say um, your choice, Europe or Putin. And, you know, that, that's a pretty convincing argument, I think, in, in very 
uh, short number, a uh, short uh, sentence. Um, so yes, I think I would say that Orban uh, should be cons- very worried uh, going into this election. Um, and you see that pattern repeated uh, throughout Western Europe, where we're talking about political parties, really not uh, political leaders. So, for instance, as I said, in France, Marine Le Pen also. Um, uh, kind of struck a deal with uh, Putin, got some financing from the Russian government through uh, various means, um, took, made a trip to Moscow, a kind of uh, uh, a visit to the Mecca of, uh, of political um, right-wing uh, politics these days. Um, she too has had to kind of back off from uh, her support of Putin and has you know, tried to reinvent herself like a number of other right-wing leaders in Europe reinvent themselves as kind of supporters of Ukraine all along. Uh, um, <laughs> similar similar process in Italy with Matteo Salvini, head of the Liga party, uh-huh. um, and he had formed a electoral alliance between Liga and United Russia, Putin's party, uh, and that is a grave embarrassment for him today. Yeah. Uh, his party has lost support kind of gradually over the last few months, um, and he's now running third or possibly even fourth at this point. Um, and he too has tried to kind of reinvent himself, uh, not as a as a psychophant and mm-hmm. uh, you know bootlicker of, of uh, Vladimir Putin, but as a you know again a patriot and a supporter of Ukraine. Yeah, I didn't mean it. Yeah, 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 sure. I think people, you know, I can't help but think that that you know the question is it Europe or Putin? That's real clear. That's and people. You know, you got to keep it simple, and they are doing that. And uh, to to see, uh, these are what you're describing is music to my ears. These guys going down. Hopefully, uh, I do. T- I, it's fascinating. And before we get to uh, the possibly shaky status of Brazil's far right, Bolsonaro and India's uh, Narendra Modi, everyone listening is familiar with Fox's own Tucker Carlson. Not being a Fox person, your article informed me. He broadcast for a whole week from Orban's Hungary recently. What did what did he mean, Tucker Carlson mean, when he asked, why can't we have this in America? Why is he the darling of Carlson and the so-called conservative political action committee? Well, you know, a lot of folks here in the United States on the, on the right wing and alt-right, far-right, uh, it's hard to know what Tucker Carlson is exactly <laughs> in terms of ideology, but they have looked to to uh, Viktor Orban as, as a role model in the same way that Orban looked to Putin as a role model. And they did so because, you know, basically they wanted to reproduce that model here in the United States. They want uh, a figure like Donald Trump, who of course did have four years uh, in the White House, to uh, implement pretty much the same kind of conservative, very conservative social agenda um, to crack down on all of the you know the members of the liberal media that they don't like mm-hmm. um, to to pack the Supreme Court with you know, conservative justices, which is of course what Trump did. Yes. Um, so uh, effectively, Trump did follow the Orban model, and so there it, it makes sense for Tucker Carlson to pay homage to that by going this summer to um, mm. to broadcast from Budapest. And when he asked that question, why can't 
uh, we be like Budapest today. Uh, specifically, it was around immigration questions. Uh, um, and, and Orban had kind of built his reputation within the European Union as being perhaps the most anti-immigrant leader in Europe, had effectively closed his borders to everybody, had refused to participate in the burden-sharing scheme that the European Union came up with so that, you know, countries would kind of uh, share among themselves a burden Mm -hmm. of uh, housing and uh, and training uh, immigrants coming from uh, and refugees coming from uh, Syria, Afghanistan, North Africa, etc. So... uh, Carlson, you know, wanted to to really emphasize that he wanted to kind of make these issues once again primary uh, and central to U.S. politics. Uh, we should remember that, you know, under uh, under COVID conditions, basically immigration was taken off the agenda as an mm. issue. We closed borders; people were not coming in significant numbers. Uh, Trump loses uh, the uh, the election in 2020. Um, uh, Biden comes in, relaxes some, but not all, right. of immigration rules. There is an uptick of folks coming over the border. So this is an opportunity for Carlson and uh, other Republicans to kind of take the game plan from 2015-2016 and, uh, and kind of uh, revive it. Um, with a echo, a reference to the success of Orban in Hungary. So this is the kind of um, the worldview, if you will, of of Orban and his his fellows. And it seems to me there was this big orange guy who said, "Build the wall, build the wall." Kind of similar, kind of similar. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And India, huge country with a population of nearly a billion and a half people. You write that that uh, India's Modi threw his fortunes in with Putin. It, it, could this be a calculated move given India's relations with China? And and I wonder how he, this is affecting Modi. Is he starting to be uh, adversely affected by uh, Putin's war in Ukraine? Uh, as far as I can tell, no, not yet. Um, you know, Modi is 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 a pretty crafty fellow. Um, he knows that India has long had a relationship with Russia. Um, Russia has provided India with a tremendous amount of military hardware over the years, has a pretty strong economic relationship. Um, Mo, India's relationship with India, uh, sorry, <laughs> India's relationship with China has always been a little bit uh, touch and go. Obviously, they had a war back in uh, 1960. There have been um, territorial disputes that have gone uh, hot and cold over the years. Um, And China has worked pretty closely with Pakistan as part of its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, building up infrastructure within Pakistan. So there are are reasons why India has kind of historically sided with Russia um, rather than, for instance, China. But there has been, you know, leading up to this most recent war, uh, I think Putin had this kind of grand strategy where he would basically affect a a rapprochement between India and China and Russia, India and China would kind of emerge as an illiberal bloc. And of course, they are all, they're all three part of BRICS along with Brazil um, and South Africa. But this was really the triumvirate, the illiberal triumvirate that that Putin wanted to focus on. Um, And uh, so far, you know, Modi has 
you know, has not um, really gone heavily, heavily uh, in his uh, condemnation of the invasion, has tried to kind of maintain a certain amount of neutrality, um, has even most recently bought uh, Russian um, uh, fossil fuels, oil, natural gas at a discounted price um, as a way of supporting Russia. Uh, at the moment, the United States and other countries have not implemented secondary sanctions. In other words, there are sanctions against Russia, but they're not secondary sanctions against countries that are doing business with Russia. So for the moment, at least, neither India nor China uh, have see any penalties really for for their dealings with with Russia? That might change, um, and uh, and we'll see what kind of economic impact or spillover the war will have in terms of the Indian economy and whether that will affect uh, Modi's political fortunes. Yeah, the economy is a obviously a big thing. People usually vote with their wallets uh, again and again and again. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're asking the uh, question, will Ukraine write the alt-rights epitaph? Could this, I mean, is the horror, the, the murders, the massacres that are continuing, maybe, you know, the world is united against Putin almost entirely. So maybe... This could, uh, well, one question I have and that I don't really have an answer for is an alternative. You know, if people are not getting ahead, if they haven't been listened to, I frankly don't see the so-called liberals uh, reaching out and offering some alternative. But at least it's starting to uh, wear down the ugliness uh, that that uh, Putin has unleashed and maybe uh, maybe starting to weaken some of these people. And one of these people, of course, is Brazil's Bolsonaro. You point out, uh, John Veffer, that he traveled to Moscow in a very public display of support. And now you say being tarred as Putin's man in Latin America may not do as much damage to the Brazilian far right, however, as the economic fallout from the war. What do you think that might be? So uh, Bolsonaro has always been kind of vulnerable on the economic front. Um, you know, his popularity rating right now is pretty low. I mean, uh, somewhere in the 20%, 30% uh, realm. Um, he was able to sustain his popularity during the coronavirus lockdowns, basically by giving out cash handouts to uh, poor members of Brazilian society. He's no longer able to do that. It's basically run through that money. Um, his lack of popularity stems in part from the kind of decline of economic fortunes of the vast majority of Brazilian population, uh, in part from his high-handed autocratic tendencies, um, and uh, in part his kind of um, abysmal policies on the environment and, and the Amazon. So there are a variety of reasons why Bolsonaro's popularity has declined. But uh, I think he's most vulnerable on economic issues. And uh, the war in Ukraine is definitely going to have an impact on the Brazilian economy, as it will have on the global economy. Um, and, and partly it's a matter of who Brazil sells to, and partly it's a matter of um, uh, and the prices that uh, Brazil can charge, but also, more importantly, what Brazil is importing and the prices uh, associated with those imports. Um, and some of that is 
you know, the war in Ukraine, some of that is just kind of inflation, um, kind of post-COVID lockdown inflation, but the two together could have a kind of profound impact. Um, the election in Brazil is not till the fall, so um, yeah. we're not going to see that political fallout for a little while. But I suspect um, unless Bolsonaro were to do what he is sometimes threatened to do, which is to seize power in a military coup, mm. uh, we will see his um, we will see him leave office in the fall. Ah, well, let us hope so. And they've certainly had uh, military coups in the past, a long history of that in Brazil. And we, we've seen the, you know, with the, with the flags everywhere, the blue and yellow flags, it's inspiring. I mean, they're everywhere. And we've seen the eagerness of young white men in the American far right, meanwhile, form ersatz militias in the woods and play soldier. Many people with good intentions are going to defend the independence of Ukraine, I can certainly understand that. But you also see some neo-Nazis headed there, too. Given that, you write that there has been speculation that the war in Ukraine will be a boon for the European far right, which will acquire combat experience in their fighting the Russian troops. What is, what is their goal? What, do you, what is it do you think that is? Well, first, let's put this in perspective. Um, we're not talking about a large number right. of people. Um, we are talking about, you know, uh, battalions in Ukraine, like the Azov Battalion, which right. have um, been associated with far-right politics, uh, have recruited um, mercenaries, if essentially far-right mercenaries, even back in 2014, um, when the kind of first fighting broke out mm. uh, in in the Donbass, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so they they actually already had some combat experience. Um, so this is a, another kind of bite at that apple. Um, in in the terms of the folks they've been recruiting, well, you know there are these neo Nazi and far right paramilitaries, similar to what we have here in the United States with three percenters and Proud Boys and, and similar um, kind of uh, uh, outfits. Uh, they are very explicitly white nationalist. They're very explicitly anti-immigrant. Um, they have this notion that um, that there is a quote-unquote great replacement going on in which folks from other parts of the world are coming to um, the white bastions of Europe, North America, and Russia to replace those populations, replace them uh, demographically, replace their in terms of jobs, replace them in terms of culture. So this ideology of great replacement is the animating kind of philosophy behind uh, these far-right militias. And, you know, for these paramilitary folks, I mean, they want to, you know, accelerate the yeah. decline of Western civilization, um, Western multicultural civilization. So they are, uh, they are self-defined accelerationists. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not accommodationists. They don't believe in a kind of political path to power. They believe in accelerating through violent conflict the polarization, uh, the splits, the differences within societies, the cleavages, uh, to basically cause the status quo, the liberal status quo in their mm. minds, to fail, to fall. And so that's their kind of their goal. And to fight in Ukraine on the side of a small band of, of uh, neo-Nazis and fascists that are there is an opportunity to gain a political military experience for this larger fight.
The larger fight, and they these are individuals. They can't presumably they read newspapers and know what's going on and and see the uh, overwhelming uh, opposition and fury all across the world. I would think maybe it might affect them and start to whittle down their uh, uh, support. I mean, I I don't know, of course. And despite, I mean, Russia has unleashed incredible weapons, that uh, hypersonic bomb going at many times the speed of sound. And despite the overwhelming weapons, people of Ukraine are inspiring people everywhere. So in that light, the power of world opinion. Russia's, or Soviet Union's, Stalin famously boasted that public opinion didn't matter at all. And I may not have this quote right, but he allegedly scoffed when, when the Pope was criticizing him. He said, well, how many divisions does the Pope have? And exactly. well, why might we now think world opinion matters to this newer Stalin type of guy? Well, I'm not sure that public opinion does actually matter um, to Putin. I don't think he cares how he's characterized in the Western press. Um, And I don't think he cares at all about opposition movements, uh, either within his country or or outside the country. Uh, He only cares about power. To the extent that public opinion can translate into power, well, then, of course, he's interested in it, but public opinion, just as public opinion, is not of interest. Um, What is of interest will be the power is represented in the form of sanctions that can have a real impact on the Russian economy and, uh, and of course, expressed in the resistance of Ukrainians on the ground. Um, If Russian army is pushed back by the Ukrainian uh, army, which it has uh, successfully done in the last couple of days in in a couple of different places, uh, that is of concern to Vladimir Putin. Um, That might force him to take a more uh, accommodating position in negotiations. Yeah, I I wonder if if he can come out of this i mean in so many different things uh, events in history if you back somebody into a corner and and they feel humiliated the reaction is not generally a positive one and i'm wondering if uh if 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 uh it starts he may be able to put may be able to survive politically with a negotiated agreement he can claim as a victory do you see that I I never know. I mean, history always takes bizarre, unpredicted turns. Uh, Do you think that that's possible? And how how does he come out of this if there's some kind of negotiated agreement that looks that he can paint as a victory? Well, I do believe that Putin, um, I mean, he wants a victory. (laughs) I mean, uh, the question is how that victory will be. not only what it looks like, but how he can pitch it to the Russian people. Um, And uh, victory in this sense would be, of course, Ukraine being neutral. Um, So NATO membership off the table um, and uh, perhaps its military capacity constrained in some important way. Perhaps a reduction in number of military exercises, for instance, that Ukraine participates in, or a demilitarized zone that 
you know, uh, uh, takes in a certain amount of Ukrainian territory. All of that is possible as a as a quote unquote victory on security issues, um, uh, and he could. Putin could then pitch this to the Russian people as well. He was successful in um, sticking up for the rights of ethnic Russians uh, in mm-hmm. Ukraine uh, and that he secured some measure of security for those folks in the Donbass and elsewhere in Ukraine. Uh, so that that would probably be you know, the, the closest thing to a, uh, a negotiated settlement that we're going to get. It would have to include some other issues, obviously, composition of the Ukrainian government, disposition of certain territories. But I think the the main issue mm, that he would see as a victory uh, would be this question of neutrality. Uh-huh. And it could have probably uh, happened. And within your question, will Ukraine write the alt-rights epitaph, is another question. Without Putin... This far right, alt right, whatever, lacks an international leader, which brings up the question: These groups, many of them across the world, in America and elsewhere, claim to be homegrown, genuine grassroots populist movements. And so, if Putin is not victorious in Ukraine and loses his strongman gravitas, what, what is that? Do you think going to do to the to the far right in America and these other countries if he's not? The, the big leader, they got nobody. Well, you know, uh, Putin's major uh, aim with respect to the Ukraine war was to decapitate the Ukrainian government, essentially, to, to remove Zelensky, remove the, the kind of top layer of leadership. What he has, in fact, done is decapitated the alt-right movement internationally by taking himself out of uh, the top leadership of, of this movement, um, because there really isn't anybody else who has that the, the power, um, the resources, and the motivation to lead a kind of alt-right international. Um, Donald Trump never cared about that. I mean, his his uh, ambitions were always national for the most part. Um, Modi is again. He might have some regional ambitions, but uh, Xi Jinping is non-ideological in that sense. Mm. Um, Bolsonaro, I think, is heading out the door, <laughs> even within Brazil. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I, I don't really think there's there's anybody who has aspired to that kind of leadership in the same way that uh, Putin did. The only person who might come close. Uh, who is a, a, a sitting leader would be Orban himself, mm. who who has hoped to kind of uh, be the the head of a, a, a pan-European alt-right or far-right. Um, there are other aspirants like I mean, Geert Wilders, for instance, in Netherlands, or Marine Le Pen, or Matteo Salvini, but they haven't, you know, even uh, managed to solidify their own national base. So it would be premature and uh, and arrogant beyond belief for them to attempt to um, to lead an international uh, based on this philosophy. Uh huh. No, oh, I, I, this is very nice, and and it's hard to be uh, at all optimistic these days. But my goodness, that you, you're pointing out some things that uh, make an awful lot of sense for those who may have just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest is John Pfeffer, director of foreign policy and focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're talking about how Ukraine uh, may 
kind of decapitate the far right, maybe the end of it. Uh, that would be uh, very nice. And here, you know, through legal technicalities, the FBI investigation into Russia's ties with Donald Trump did not prove collusion. Of course, it was there. There's no, I mean, he is, Trump is the leader of the far right. He was, he loved Putin. He remade the Republican Party in his own image. This is sweet music to my ears when you write, Putin's effort to establish a beachhead in the United States ended when Trump left office. So I wonder how likely it is that the, the far right will start to show disintegration because I don't, Trump doesn't seem to be on the upswing. Your thoughts? No, he, he isn't, uh, Trump personally. Uh, but I am concerned more generally about the prospects for the far right if not internationally, then at least nationally. And here in the United States, we've seen um, you know, the, the continuation of Trump's domination of the Republican Party and the emergence of other figures who can kind of take uh, Trump's mantle uh, if he, for whatever reasons, uh, steps aside in 2024. We see the prospects of the Republican Party kind of winning a majority uh, back in Congress and in the midterms, and, uh, and their ability to capitalize on what is perceived as Biden's weakness yes. here in the United States. Um, we are still dealing with a fragile global economy that continues not to distribute benefits equally. We've seen a, a, a very wide disparity in, um, in vaccination rates and, mm. uh, and, and the kind of campaign to, to lay to rest COVID-19. Um, and uh, we have also seen you know, a failure by international uh, leaders in the international community to really tackle climate change in a significantly serious uh, way to avoid you know, um, you know, basically exceeding the 1.5 degree limit yeah. by 2050. So for all those reasons, you know, as well as, you know, and I should add, you know, just an upswell of, of immigrants uh, and refugees, not just from right. Ukraine, but a huge number coming out of this conflict, uh, all of which can provide kind of uh, political firepower for the far right. So even if, you know, we don't have Putin heading up a, uh, a illiberal international, even if Donald Trump is cashiered one way or another, uh, that doesn't mean that the far right is um, is, is out of the picture. Uh, we might see the far right uh, re-emerge in different forms, mm. um, uh, in different political expressions. Um, we might see new figures such as uh, Tom Cotton here yeah. in the United States, a senator from um, Arkansas, um, uh, or Josh Hawley, yeah. um, you know, emerging. Uh, I mean, these are young, uh, sufficiently charismatic <laughs> um, characters who can you know, represent Trumpist views in, in different form. Um, and, uh, and and if they're not quite as populist in their um, orientations as Trump, they can fake it uh, as long as it's necessary. So, uh, you know, I, I might be optimistic about, you know, the, the death of, of certain forms of the alt-right, uh, but I, I remain uh. pessimistic about, about uh, political and economic trends more generally. Uh, there's that realism coming in there, unfortunately. Yes. And uh, 
you know, I, I have found it interesting, and I, I read a fair amount of history. In the revolutions in Europe in 1848, I was not expecting to learn that some of the most committed defenders of the rule of aristocrats and the royalty were the peasants. It seems somehow that people without power are attracted very much to wealthy, powerful, strong men. I mean, Trump flaunting his wealth and this incredible castle that Putin lives in. I, I, I wonder, in terms of starting to see some evidence of the start of an epitaph for the far right, I wonder if there's building among these authoritarian supporters any anger, any anger over this reality that the wealth of a nation is being sucked up and shifted to the top. Do they, do they get this at all? I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit confused by that. <laughs> and there's good reason for you to be confused. Um, it is a, 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 a tremendous paradox that the the leaders of the populist movements, not only here in the United States but elsewhere, are elitists of you know the, of top caliber. You know, these are people who are not only wealthy but they have gone to elite institutions. Um, they have elite belief systems in many respects. They're definitely members of the, the top 1%. Right. Um, and yet they they are able to convince their followers that they're just ordinary people. Then mm. um, they have to because there's tremendous amount of anger toward the 1%, tremendous amount of anger about the, the redistribution of wealth up upwards. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I am hopeful that there will be a kind of Elmer Gantry moment in which, you know, the, the the average person, you know, realizes the scales fall from their eyes and they realize that these purported populists um, are not populists at all, that they are just, you know, masquerading as uh, elitists, uh, masquerading yeah, as populists in order to basically implement an elitist agenda. Absolutely. I mean, so they work, these populists, many of them who are drawn to this stuff, who are legitimately angry that they've been left out, uh, they, they don't seem to realize that they're supporting, you know, their own oppression, economic oppression. And here in the United States, people weigh, the same people had Trump and American flags together. I, I wonder how many in the alt-right in America even know that they're authoritarians out to undermine a Republican form of government. They think they're being real patriots. How, what, what about this unawareness? Do you think this is, is it starting to get through at all? Well, you know, that, that's hard to say. I mean, I think it has gotten through to a lot of people. And a lot of people have abandoned, you know, the 3% movement or the Proud Boys movement. They were disillusioned by the uh, the after effects of January 6th. Uh, uprising, they saw you know these people attack police officers who had hitherto been kind of uh -huh. figures of great respect. Sure. Um, uh, saw them you know saying they would you know, basically hang the vice president of the United States. That didn't sit well with a lot of folks. So, I mean, I do think that these kinds of sentiments are really um, uh, becoming really a, a, a part of only a, a smaller and smaller minority. That is that is my uh -huh. hope here in the United States. Uh huh. Yeah, well, we can help to make it happen, too. And as we've seen in history, fascists come and fascists go. You end your article with this statement of, again, hope. Let's hope that the Ukrainian resistance drives a stake through the heart of both Putinism and the alt-right alt -right, once and for all. 
Boy, it sure sounds good to me. It's been great talking to you again, as always. Uh, John Pfeffer uh, in the article is titled, Will Ukraine Write the Alt-Right's Epitaph? Uh, and a whole bunch of books out. What can you point people to on the Internet that they can uh, see other works that you've done? Uh, they can go to uh, fpif.org, or they can go to my website, johnpfeffer.com. Thank you so much, and uh, dare we hope? Yes, let's dare. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bert. I appreciate it. Take care. You too. Mm-hmm.